Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Truth and Movies, Mark Ruffalo shines the spotlight on a chemical cover-up in dark waters. You want to take everything that you know and turn it against an iconic American company like an informant. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Yes. Celine Sciamma paints a feminist picture with portraits of a lady on fire. Ça fait des années que je rêve de faire ça. Mourir. Courir. And in Film Club, Julianne Moore is allergic to the 20th century in Todd Haynes's safe. It's in the air, in the water, in our homes. Oh my God. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, sitting in the host chair as usual, sitting across this week from returning guest Anna Bogotskaya. Welcome back, Anna. Hello. And a newcomer this week, we have Claire Marie Healy. Welcome, Claire. Hi, thank you. Please tell our listeners who you are and what you do. Um, I edit Dazed and Confused magazine, um, and I write about movies, and I profile actors, and yeah. I love the podcast. So. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> really, pleasure to have you on board. We should kick off. We've got some big films to talk about this week. We're going to start off with Todd Haynes and Mark Ruffalo in Dark Waters. Inspired by a shocking true story, a tenacious attorney uncovers a dark secret that connects a growing number of unexplained deaths due to one of the world's largest corporations. In the process, he risks everything, his future, his family and his own life, to expose the truth. At DuPont, better living through chemistry. It's our DNA. You need to tell me what in the hell's going on. DuPont is knowingly poisoning 70,000 local residents for the last 40 years. You knew, still you did nothing. You want to flush your career down the toilet for some cow hand? You want to take everything that you know and turn it against an iconic American company, like an informant. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Yes. And that was a clip from Dark Waters there, the new film from Todd Haynes. To some people, Todd Haynes is quite a big name, Anna, but this isn't really really what you maybe would expect from him, is it? I mean, it's almost difficult to describe what one would expect from Todd Haynes because he's so... He's such a fantastic filmmaker and his range of work and the stuff that he's done before is so variable. You know, you kind of almost don't want to set your expectations too high, but there is a certain flavor Mm -hmm. to the sort of work that he's made before. And a paperwork political courtroom drama thriller is not what I would have expected him to sign on to. Mm -hmm. At the same time, that odd combination is kind of appealing in a sense. You know, I was really curious to see what a really visual um, narrative filmmaker like Todd Haynes would bring to traditionally kind of quite a worthy, gloomy genre. And not much. Mm-hmm. So this, we were just laughing that the synopsis that you just read out made it sound a lot more exciting than the film actually is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of... Like, 
it's a kind of inaccurate description. I mean, it's a huge story. Mm -hmm. I myself had not, I have not read the profile that inspired the film. Um, I do have a, a a very strong love for the courtroom legal dramas. I love all the yelling. Mm -hmm. I love all of the dramatics that come out of fighting for a cause and for you know fighting for the truth and sacrificing your um, your livelihood, your sanity, your career for a worthy cause, and kind of having the tools to fight the powers that be and fight for the for the little man in air quotes here and that's essentially what Mark Ruffalo's character which is very much based on on a real life lawyer who spent over 20 years fighting and litigating against a huge a uh, huge corporation for and trying to expose the systematic um um a, abuse of power that they've been perpetrating of kind of um, contaminating the water supplies of not just one town uh, which makes it a very personal story but kind of the large scale effect and the the lack of accountability that were held to so it's it's seeped in corporate politics and it's seeped in big business politics and kind of corporate America and it has a lot to say about that does that make it a necessarily exciting film to see on the screen Probably not. <laughs> I think it completely depends on how much you're invested in that sort of genre, the sort of the let him speak genre. Mm. There are so many moments oh, in this like film that. where Mark Ruffalo <laughs> is trying to convince people in, in a room to be on his side and someone in, in authority, usually Tim Robbins, who is the head of his uh, legal firm, <laughs> says, no, 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 let him speak. <laughs> I love that. I love that as a name for the subgenre. But also, is it always Mark Ruffalo? I don't think I've ever seen... Have I ever seen him in so, one of these? The, the, oh, Zodiac. And Spotlight. Of. So, oh, yes. so I think that's the best way to think about this film is it is Mark Ruffalo who's producing this film. Yes. His, his follow-up to Spotlight, which he plays a similar role in this one. He is not Hot Ruffalo. He's not Hulk Ruffalo. He is this sort of, you know, quite quiet, anxious mm. guy who's always been a company man realising that he's going to go against his law firm who usually represent these chemical com companies to fight for the little man and come into his own as, as a real American hero. And I think if you like the twists and turns of quite a talky, you say courtroom drama, it's yeah. ma mainly boardroom drama for most of it. There are it courtroom scenes later on. It reminded me a lot of The Report, actually, which was mm -hmm. another quite recent sort of paperwork thriller where just the vastness of the, the conspiracy, which makes it sound really exciting, but it kind of is, you know, the kind of the corporate conspiracy world, the large and um, almost untamable scale of it makes it so daunting. And mm -hmm. then the perseverance of the lead character. In the case of the report, it's, um, I forget the actual person's name, but Adam Driver's character, and in this case, Mark Ruffalo's, you know, their tenacity to keep going and keep digging kind of really, it, it taps into that aspirational story of David versus Goliath, mm -hmm. of the little man versus the huge, um, undefeatable giant. And you talk about tenacity, it's over decades, the story, yeah. and so many times there is the weight of the paperwork mm. or the fact that you'd have to survey tens of thousands of people in a town to get any sort of medical records or medical proof and then fight each case individually so it is about that going and doing the work and being tenacious while doing it we're making it sound you know quite plodding here claire what did you make of, uh, of dark waters i also haven't read the original Profile, And I think the New York Times story and obviously at the beginning of the movie, it very proudly kind of states this is really based on this New York Times story, you know. And I think having not read it, you know, what was happening and the discoveries that Mark Ruffalo's character is making, I'm, I'm also discovering. Mm -hmm. So I did have moments where I was quite gripped in terms of the kind of level of deception that's going on. However, <laughs> I think it's also a taste thing. Like, I don't think I am big on these sort of paperwork thrillers uh, generally. Uh, and I, it's that kind of thing where how exciting can you make sort of Mark Ruffalo, like, looking through papers <laughs> be? <laughs> and because it's Todd Haynes, you kind of think maybe he could do a little bit more with that. Because, you know, like the movie we'll discuss later, you know, it relates in a way mm -hmm. and that kind of seems to go a little bit further in terms of experimentation. And this is like, I think, the first, you know, film that Todd Haynes is developing properly with a studio mm. kind of all the way through. Right. Um, so maybe that kind of has an effect. But it did feel at points like maybe he's trying to pick out 
parts of that original story and like make or nod to something a little bit more with them you know so like the relationship with his wife and how she's kind of giving up on uh, being a lawyer herself and raising the kids and it's kind of like if you're going to make that point about women in the workplace maybe go a bit further Mm -hmm. but I feel like he's trying to kind of magnify small parts of the story uh, that were originally there but then he has to be quite wedded to the facts Mm -hmm. so I feel like maybe there's a tension there which isn't kind of productive when you're watching it yeah one thing i would highlight maybe i'm looking for hainesian flourishes where if it was anyone else's name on the on, on the film i wouldn't be but there is the ed, ed lockman who, who shoots many of Haynes's films shot this film the cinematographer and does have this very queasy blue color palette all the way through like the world that we're looking at is is sick and diseased this relates to safe which we talk about later which takes a much more metaphorical ambiguous look at this rather than this film where we find out that literally there is poison in the water of america and and it's that's quite interesting and there are these slight flourishes and I wanted to animate maybe you responded to this where it almost looks like it's a real world horror film mm. where the, there are flashes where we where there are whole cattles of cow dying and we see the actual body horror of enlarged hearts and blackened teeth and bones and flashes in Mark Ruffalo's minds of children having blackened teeth with this water it's like literally one or two moments across a two hour long film but mm. you could see what could have happened maybe if there was a more stylish drive behind this this project. I completely agree with your point about the cinematography. That's mm-hmm. actually, it's been criticised about the film, the mm-hmm. fact that it's, I think because of the expectations that we have of, of a Todd Haynes picture, but it's not flashy, it's very subdued in its colour palette. It does feel, like you say, almost contaminated, like mm-hmm. it's murky waters, like you're watching the film through this veneer of disease and pollution in many ways. That makes complete sense with the sort of story that he's telling and also the, not to get too metaphorical but kind of this slog and uh, that the character has to go through throughout over 20 years of just carrying the weight of the responsibility and this contamination that he takes upon himself to try to combat on other people's behalf he had no dog in his fight in in this fight and he got got himself involved and got so kind of um, put so much responsibility upon his own shoulders that then he has to kind of slog through that thing and you really feel the weight of that throughout the film and the cinematography is quite oppressive mm. the framing of Murf- of Ruffalo's character as well just constantly being surrounded by this piles of information being yelled at by people being a constant disappointment to the point where he starts breaking down physically through just the sheer weight of the stress and the responsibility of this um but the the horrific elements to it, I thought were quite subdued. Mm. I think a lesser, less contained director would have emphasized that a bit more, gone really flashy, really gory with like look at look at what we're putting in our bodies. Look at how you know, quote unquote, deformed we're gonna end up being because of corporate greed and corporate America. I don't think that's ultimately what Todd Haynes is trying to do. Those flashes there are there to illustrate, I think, the humane repercussions of mm. it what actually happens to the livelihood of the farmer whose fl- uh, whose animals and his pets and his family and himself are diseased as a result of this the fact that he's kept those horrific mementos of it as a form of proof not as a way to showcase the horrors but just to keep a record of them because nobody else would and you know the picture there's a picture that Mark Ruffalo's character keeps bringing up of a, of a baby that's been born with um, birth defects um, as a cause, as a result of his mother being on this line of Teflon production of this of this company, DuPont. And he brings it up at very choice moments and this image haunts him in a sense. But I don't think it haunts him because it's meant to be horrifying or body horror. I think it haunts him because it's, a, it's an innocent baby, uh, a new life that's been from the very beginning Polluted because of a faceless, nameless company whose CEO and staffing and kind of senior management and all the high-powered execs who Mark Ruffles' character is really pally with at the beginning of the film keep changing. Mm. But he keeps... I found a very... One of the moving bits about the film is that he keeps attached to this image of this baby, Bucky, um, 
because it just keeps reminding him of the human cost of something quite large and faceless that can defend and camouflage itself by the sheer fact of being too big to grapple with. You can't really put a face or a name to DuPont. Mm. The executives will always change every couple of years. But you can put a face and a name to the baby Bucky Mm -hmm. and the effects that that would have had on his family and on his own life. And that kind of keeps him attached to a reason to continue fighting in a way, not to sound too melodramatic, mm-hmm. but considering that one of Todd Haynes's strengths and some of his more flashier and glorious films were really inspired and in some ways throwbacks or reimaginings of classical Hollywood melodramas. I think those are those mm-hmm. kind of humane elements that lift up what could be perceived as quite a drab, um, dark, muddy courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. And something very unexpected about this film for me is that, as with many true-life dramas, there's going to be a moment at the end where they show the real people who, who inspired the story. And I'm not going to say... This is, a, this is a, I guess, a spoiler, but not really. It shows that they've been threaded through the entire film as cameos that you didn't realise. And I it really ends like on this Because it, it can end, at least on a small scale, uh, on something like a happy note, because he did win on behalf of these lo- the local population. It can end on this note of triumph and have... A roll call of the, of the of the heroes of the piece, which including Bucky, young, you know, who's now uh, a man and a grown man. Really interesting. After we've seen the Richard Jewell type films coming out, where often or Bombshell, where the final strains of these real life dramas are often black and white photographs or uh, or l- slabs of text that are meant to really hammer home the message. Let's put some scores on this. Claire, I'll come to you first. As it's your first time, let me run through what the scores are here so that we have three scores on this podcast, like with the magazine. We have In Anticipation, Enjoyment, and In Retrospect. In Anticipation, I I do love, you know, many of Todd Haynes' films, but I could kind of see that this was one of those kind of facts-based films that maybe I'm not so into, so maybe three. Uh, watching it three I didn't uh, hate it at all but you know it was kind of in the middle and in retrospect three Mm. all threes all threes Anna Um, I'm going to say my expectations were quite low because uh, it did not look to be a traditional Todd Haynes picture so I'd say expectation would be two Mm -hmm. Um, enjoyment three because I do I do enjoy a courtroom drama. I do enjoy Mark Ruffalo. I do enjoy Todd Haynes. All of those things are good. It didn't necessarily grip me a lot. Um, and in retrospect, actually four, because mm. even as we were speaking, um, even though I wasn't was not making that much of it at the time, I think there's a lot more to pick out from the film uh, once you start kind of thinking and talking about it. Mm-hmm. I'll say three, four, four for me. I, Todd Haynes has made some fantastic films. We'll talk about one of them later on in this podcast. But Wonderstruck, his previous film, was, again, an unlikely project for him. So I wasn't sure what to expect from this. But it's a very watchable film. Then again, I'm a fan of this sort of genre. And I think that uh, this is a pretty good entry into that after some of the films we've had over Oscar season. If we're talking about failed Oscar bait films of the last six months, this is one of the better ones. And I will shout out, it's more of a, a... a feature cameo, really. Bill Pullman as the local oh, yeah. lawyer, Harry Dietzel, who turns up with a ridiculous accent and much more flamboyant performance than anyone else is giving in the film. Oh, I love Bill Pullman in this. <laughs> he is just—he is going up to eleven in this film. It's like he read a completely different script. So I get really excited about Bill Pullman. <laughs> Anyway, that is Dark Waters in cinemas this week. Up next, we have a, an award winner from Cannes last year, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. In 18th century France, a painter is commissioned by a countess to paint the wedding portrait of her sheltered but headstrong daughter. While posing as a hired companion, she's instructed to complete the portrait in secret, observing her subject by day and painting her by night. However, as the two women grow closer, their intimacy and attraction begins to blossom, paving the way for a simmering, star-crossed romance. Elle vous attend. Ça fait des années que je rêve de faire ça. Mourir. Courir. 
a suitably simmering clip there from the trailer for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So, Claire, this film was one of the films that was talked about most from Cannes last year. At what point did you come to see it and what did you make of it? I watched it because I actually interviewed Noemi Merlon fairly recently and it felt like for about a year before that everyone was saying, oh, have you seen Portrait? You would love it. You know, you have to see it. Um, I saw Celine Sciamma speak at the BFI Mm -hmm. even well before I saw this this movie um, where the audience members were all insisting on spoiling it (laughs) half of whom had seen it Um, so yeah and now I've watched it a few times and I just love 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 it Right. So what was it like talking to Naomi Malan about it? What was was her insight into the film? Great, great Um, she is very interesting Mm -hmm. actually I think and you know when these you know she's a French actress who's had really has built up quite a long career in Mm. film and theatre and you know it's when they really get their introduction to like an international stage and you're like oh who is this person but actually they've been doing stuff for a while Mm -hmm. Um, so I haven't seen any of her other films but she told me she's actually directed a feature right yeah Um, I think she said something about pirates but (laughs) I might be wrong okay Um, that could be exciting yeah but she was great uh, and I think her performance is amazing. But it's true what you say. For many fans of Celine Sciamma's work or people who are familiar with it, you know, Naomi Malone is the newcomer in this film because Celine Sciamma and Adele Arnell have worked many times together. And yeah. do, you, do you have a history with Celine Sciamma? Do you see any... This is, we're talking about two films here from two queer filmmakers who are going off in different directions stylistically. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Sciamma's first film that's not set in contemporary a contemporary period but do you see a, a link between her previous films and this one um for sure i think the main link and there's a there's a really wonderful interview with celine in the garden i think where she kind of talks about her intentions behind the film and i think the thread that you can see throughout her previous work is the focus on a female perspective mm-hmm. on everything on life on love on lust on companionship on friendship on art on looking um one of the, and you know not to sound too esoteric but she is so concerned with giving her characters and not you know she's also got a fantastic film about kind of a, a non-binary character mm-hmm. uh of giving her characters the ability to look and to make up their gaze and their take on the world and how they experience it and I don't know I don't think I have the words to articulate exactly how she does it Mm -hmm. but she makes you feel really in the skin really feel like you're in the skin of these characters you know you're looking through their eyes even when you're looking at them it's sort of fantastical it's the way that she plays with mood with the framing with the ca- with her casting choices with the sort of actors and actresses that she uses how she directs them and her address to audience and they're all very all her films are very hers you can notice them if you've seen if you've seen some of her previous work even if you haven't my introduction to her work I must admit I'd seen I think Tomboy before but it was really girlhood mm-hmm. and how that exploded in the conversation and that you know inspires you to go back and, and revisit her previous work and this film I remember just actually skipping the queue and getting into the first uh, screening of it in Cannes or the second one and just being blown away and part of it was because I knew who she was but I had zero expectations so it was just being allowed to be in that world and that's one of her powers as a filmmaker whatever the the context of the story is it kind of doesn't really matter because she has the ability to really make you empathize and connect with whatever character she's choosing to portray Mm -hmm. and when you take a step back and you look at her career and the way that she's talked about it as well it's sort of really powered by empathy Mm. by this really sincere empathy and love for her characters and how she portrays them it's never baby it's never dismissive um it's just incredibly sincere without being cheesy or melodramatic and that's a that's a very strange and unusual balance for a filmmaker like hers to strike which is i think might be one of the reasons why portrait a lady on fire just pardon the pun caught on fire after Cannes and all this conversation that was going on uh for a year after the film's premiere and the festival about people just being really buzzy about it and kind of really lighting up when they um, when they talked about it because it just made you feel it made you re-experience the 
the feeling of falling in love. You say that. It's what's what I find so skillful about her work in this film in particular is that at the same time as it being so skillful in terms of emotional charge or emotional subtlety all the way through, it's also so intellectual in the way that it is looking at the gaze of the painter, the subject mm-hmm. and the object, the, the two-way art of looking, both in a relationship, be that a creative one or a romantic one. So the fact that she can create what is a lesbian romance, but also at the same time craft what is a manifesto about female perspectives yeah. in art. It's quite dizzying, and that's something that is part of that conversation that's been going on. So Claire, there are all these levels that this film's working on. Was there a particular one that struck you first, or did you take it in wholesale? I think, you know, you go into it and there are certain expectations you might have of a period drama, mm. right? You know, obviously it's being billed as a as a queer love story too, but there are certain structures and conventions around that, I guess. Um, and I love a good period drama, absolutely. But I think what the level that it struck me at was how unusual it is to be transported to that time and feel so close and so intimate with the characters and this relationship it's hard with you know different periods like this normally there's this there can be this kind of distancing effect or you're very used to seeing very ornate environments and it's more about taking in the whole but it's this point as you say about empathy and you feel like you're really in in the room this comes through different things and I think it's all about Celine's technique and you know she is apparently so specific with her scripting so for for Adele and Noemi it's really you know they have to take three and a half breaths before they glance at each other Mm. or you know two steps forward and one step back and this in combination with this kind of feeling of Silence that you have in this environment when they're in this house in Brittany, uh, only sometimes punctuated by a couple of musical moments, uh, which then register so emotionally because they're you're waiting for them almost, and then of course like the crashing of the waves when they're when they're out and about on the beach, but that in combination with this kind of very this like specificity to how she's instructing the actresses, I think really brings you in a way to the restrictions of that time. You really feel, I think, this feeling of being not trapped, but you're really, uh, you really feel like you're there and you feel like this this sense that they can't express how they feel. And I think it, it really is so powerful then when the romance starts to blossom and you feel sort of freed as well. Um, you really, that kind of move into them being very natural with each other suddenly. Uh, and the actresses sort of finding their freedom then within this the script, you sort of breathe this kind of sigh of relief as well. And I think that's kind of leading up to this moment where, you know, it's not just Marianne and Eloise, but there's also a housekeeper, I suppose, like a, a servant who works there, who's a young woman as well. And then you kind of lead up to this moment where they're kind of alone in the house. Mm. And, you know, there's really no men in this film. Mm. There's There's... Um, a man who kind of drops her off at the beginning and there's a man who picks something up at the end mm-hmm. and you don't really see this, you know? It's, it's, really, it's really special to have that feeling of just women together and what women do when they're really alone mm. in a time where they sort of rarely get to be... or not that they rarely get to be, but we don't often see this, right? Because period dramas are, normally mean romance and they normally mean romance between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think altogether it kind of registered for me as just such a kind of intimate experience, mm-hmm. which normally, you know, it's very hard to achieve. Yeah. It's funny that we're talking about the specificity of the period, the specificity of the location and space. But when, while we're talking about this, the pressures on these women are, are, con- are contemporary. Yes. They're universal. Yes. While we're talking about this, we're talking about Todd Haynes in a minute again. That's very similar to his film Carol in 1950s America. The, this, this sense of who they are in the outside world versus the intimate spaces that these women can create for themselves indoors, away from the prying eyes of the patriarchy. Is, is that a comparison you could see? here between those two films would it work as a double bill maybe oh god yeah that's <laughs> a, a devastating super double, hot bill. double bill um, <laughs> no I think I loved what you just said about um, what women are really like when they're really alone and you're absolutely right Michael as well about kind of the 
not necessarily it's not necessarily the focus of those films both in Carol and in A Portrait of a Lady on Fire but it's always there you know it's an inherent part of the female experience even more so in a period setting that the weight of the expectations of what's expected of them and I think we see that in particular with Marianne and Eloise because you know oh you're a lady quote unquote here you know you are expected to marry well you're expected to behave you're expected to pose and be looked at you're expected to be quiet you're not expected to behave in this way or feel these things or look like this. So I think the way that uh, Siama also taps into the sort of the, the statute of limitations almost on these characters being allowed to be free or the conditions that they're surrounded by just from the sheer fact that they're born female, that they're born in one social strata or another, um, of what they need to perform in order to be allowed to exist. Mm -hmm. And I think those pressures, but then also become so stark in comparison to the freedom and the intimacy that they find with each other. And you can apply that to, I think, almost universally to almost any experience, you know, the expectations that your parents or uh, your work or whatever have of you. And what are those moments and who are those people with whom you feel truly yourself? Mm. And I think it's worth saying that obviously Celine's kind of looked a few times at moments of adolescence and coming of age, um, Water Lily's girlhood and so on. And it did strike me watching how, even though you might not expect her to then move on to a, a, a period drama, a drama in this time, you know, in this, in, in this era, they are still girls. And there's this sense where, you know, they don't really get to be free so they don't get to grow up and you know Adele's character is going to be kind of passed on from her parents straight to her husband and she has hasn't heard an orchestra before and she mm. hasn't you know there's this kind of restriction it's so interesting she's sort of a, a baby in the world mm. and I, I kind of thought it was interesting that Celine had looked at those moments before in a contemporary setting um, and how it seemed to relate to what she's doing with portrait in a way. That's a really good point. I think actually you should watch all of her films in one weekend, and I think you, that would be a brilliant way to spend a weekend. I don't think yeah. she's made a bad film yet. And I'd throw in My Life as a Courgette, the animated film she wrote the screenplay for. Did yes. you write the screenplay for that? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I didn't realise. Oh, that's such a nice... I'll thing. ask for scores on portrait with Lady on Fire in a second but for now let's give the last word to Celine Siama herself here's a clip from when Adam had a word with her very recently and it's not just desire is it but it's female desire and it's and it's through this female gaze mm -hmm. yes and it's about mutual gaze and it's about not objectifying women uh, which isn't that hard to do actually you know people say oh female gaze what is it and, you know I'm not scratching my head for hours thinking about how am I not going to objectify women mm. Yeah, female gaze creates this idea uh, of a new way of telling stories. You know, it's not about counter gaze. It's about it's not about not doing like them. It's about in, you have to invent something, uh, especially because there's not history of it. Yeah. So you know, may, maybe well, there will be plenty, plenty of examples and good examples that won't even be examples anymore. Uh, we, we will see the link. You know, we will see the the, the corpus of that. Uh, but so far, it's about inventing something. And for this film, it was also it was a lot about in, um, crafting a love story with equality. So that was the plot. And so to get rid of the yeah, all the dominations that create this the same type of fiction, all the old conflicts, to create surprise. Because you know, if if they're not. If their love dialogue isn't committed to gender domination, uh, social domination, or um, intellectual domination, then anything can happen. And I think that's part of the tension that the film puts the viewer into. It's that it's surprising. Celine Siama there being incredibly cool. I think we can all agree. Let's put some scores on Portrait Lady on Fire then. Claire, I'll come to you first. Anticipation, as you say, Celine Siammer is very cool and her movies are great. So I guess Anticipation was four. Um, watching it, to be honest, I, I, I five. I, it was so, so beautiful to watch also. And I felt so in that world 
that I just don't experience that that often when I really think about it. Uh, and retrospectively, four. Mm. Mm. Anna? Um, I'm going to say anticipation three only because I didn't know where I was going on that day in Cannes. Okay. I got confused in a queue and then I ended up at a cinema because I could skip the queue. You thought you were seeing Tarantino. I didn't know what I was going into. It worked for the schedule. I was right there. I ended up just waltzing into the screening room and um, encountering this incredible film. So I'm going to say three um, just because of the very particular set of circumstances I found Mm. myself in. Um, Enjoyment five and in retrospect five as well Mm -hmm. it's glorious um not to repeat everything claire was saying but i agree with it completely just takes you in and absorbs you entirely and i left the cinema just feeling elated and in love with kind of with cinema with those characters with celine siama with the power that images can can have over us and it's and it's very rare to have that feeling coming out and to have that feeling endure after months of um after seeing the film mm, i think i'd give this gosh i very rarely give fives but maybe i'll give this a five four five because this is a film I mean I, I love her films I think Water Lilies and Tomboy are both classics I didn't love Girlhood as much as other people but you know, gosh she's one of the greatest, greatest working filmmakers today and only a four because I was very sleepy when I saw this in Cannes it's a very restrained piece of filmmaking don't see this without maybe a coffee beforehand because it really really builds and once it pops off it's an absolute classic and it's a film that only grows when you talk about it and think about it further so that sounds like quite a strong recommendation from the table this week for a portrait of a lady on fire up next though we're going back to Todd Haynes for his 1995 film Safe Botox Cosmetic out of botulinum toxin A FDA approved for over 20 years so talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Now back to Todd Haynes for Safe. His second feature and first collaboration with Julianne Moore, Safe tells the story of a Los Angeles wife and mother whose comfortable existence falls apart when she learns that she, like thousands of other primarily suburban women, has become environmentally ill. How are you feeling? I still have this, um, this head thing. What the hell is going on here? It's in the air, in the water. In our homes. Oh my God. It cannot be seen, cannot be heard, cannot be stopped. So we can turn it on and off like a switch. We just don't know how to make it go away. I love 90s trailers. <laughs> that is an amazing voiceover that does not really sell the film as it is at all, right? No. So, um, Anna, I'll come to you first. Uh, had you seen Safe before? Was this the first watch for you? Do you have any? No, I had seen knowledge? it before. Um, I must admit, I'd seen it years ago when I was in in uni. One of my first years in uni, I probably saw it at a v- on a VHS in a library in Central St Martin somewhere. And I kind of think that's a really good way to watch Safe for the first mm-hmm. time. But I hadn't revisited since. I must admit. So rewatching it now. Um, I loved it as a double bill with Dark Waters because they sort of touch on 
some similar themes, kind of the pollution of modernity and how greed and kind of established or, you know, capitalist society can contaminate our souls, you know, if you want to get really highbrow about it. But it's really, it doesn't feel of its time. It feels very timeless. You know, it spoke to me quite loudly rewatching it now. And obviously, it's the first collaboration between Julian Moore and Todd Haynes. They've worked together a number of times since. And I think it was one of the films that really put him on the map mm-hmm. in many ways. I think it was one of his first breakout hits. I'm not quite sure if it was first time working with his longtime producer, Christine Vachon of mm-hmm. Killer Films, who is also behind Dark Waters. They still work together. And it just sort of taps into this malaise and this suffocation of living a life and not loving it, not really enjoying it, but not really being able to pinpoint why this whole kind of environmentally ill thing is kind of hokey but it makes sense because the lead character's distress is is very real you know it's palpable it's not to be laughed at or dismissed because she's a suburban well-off housewife or as she says homemaker you know she even doesn't really know how to define herself but she goes through life kind of on autopilot and suddenly this whole film I think is about that it's about that sudden point where you realize that you don't really know why you're living the life you're living or whether you're living it because you chose it or because you just went with what people told you is the right way of living. And again, it's a feeling that I think almost everybody can empathize with. And this pretext that he uses to illustrate and make visible her internal struggles is is so potent. I think maybe even more now than it was in 1995. It's a film that's aged remarkably well. It really has. And what strikes me watching this film now, after Dark Waters, is that he's succeeding this this very complicated balancing act where it's satirising American culture, American suburban excess and privilege, whilst at the same time having an empathy towards this the, the female lead of her own melodrama. And that's something that maybe is missing from his later films as something like Dark Waters. That may be queering of the, the narrative, as to, to, to appropriate a term there from queer cinema theory. But it's re- very interesting, and I, ma- I imagine that's why it had quite mixed reviews at the time, because they wanted it to be one thing or the other. Is it a paranoid, slightly Lynchian suburban horror about... Uh, as as the trailer says, a disease you can't see, or is it like Far From Heaven would become this modern day melodrama, really wanting to empathise with a suburban housewife? And watching it now, it still doesn't really fall into either of those categories. There is an ambiguity running all the way through, which I think is so compelling. Uh, Claire, what did you make of Safe? I loved Safe. Mm. I um, I actually saw it recently um, at a screening in London, and it was so interesting to be with an audience who totally didn't seem like they had seen the same movie and there was a discussion afterwards with these two men on stage and they were saying oh gosh she's so whiny and she's not even sick you know what's her problem and me and all my female friends you know we we completely disagreed of course and to me this character is so relatable Mm. you know and it's so relevant now in various ways um you know, anyone who's like making their way through London in the winter and it's just has like a terrible cold or, you know, you, you really kind of relate to this. And there's that amazing scene where she's in the car driving and she's just coughing and coughing and coughing. And, you know, I've never seen something like this before. It's incredible. And, you know, on the bigger picture, it just feels like a movie that could be made now because ideas of of contagion and fake news and you know these kind of globalized mass panics and you know with coronavirus or the climate crisis or not to be too doom and gloom but this is really a movie that speaks to those issues and our our lives now and also I think there's something to be said for the the scenes I found very compelling uh, are actually you know, when she starts going to the doctors, right, and there's this this doctor and he's saying, there's, there's really nothing wrong with you. And I think that there's something to be said for that experience of being a woman and maybe having ailments that are not so easily definable or don't have so much research behind them or, or whatever, mm. which is, you know, even in recent history is an issue and is an issue now. And you kind of really feel for her, you know. 
So I think this point when I was at this talk and everyone was saying how unlikable she was, I just thought, God, you're so wrong. Mm-hmm. She's She doesn't really know who she is, and but she's not forced to think about who she is until her body starts breaking down. Mm-hmm. Because in this society, it's all about her body and keeping up appearances and going to a robosized class and presenting in that way, in that very hyper-feminine way. And it's so, yeah, just great. <laughs> I think the, there might be a little bit of in, uh, intentionality there, though, mm. that he's using Julianne Moore in the way that he uses their, you know, their collaboration across their other films, Far From Heaven. She, you know, she shows up in, in, in I'm Not There as well. He knows how to use her particular talents so well. And in this, she is that naive infantilized suburban housewife I think it plays with making her a little bit unbelievable and a little bit irritating at times mm. just in order to then draw you in as as we follow her on this journey I think it's a, a start of one of the great actor-director collaborations I think this film really needs to be remastered and reissued I, I watched it recently it was on Mubi I saw it for the first time years ago in a very intense Sunday afternoon triple bill at a cinema in London where they showed Safe Far From Heaven and I'm Not There it was when Carol came out and that was I mean it was the Todd Haynes and, and Julianne Moore triple bill but by the end I was exhausted I think I'd watched Poison the night before just to <laughs> psych me up where would this rank uh, for you Anna I'll come to you first and, and Claire maybe you can chime in as well a- among Haynes's canon is it up there oh god yeah I mean I don't even I'd need to do some prep to properly rank them mm-hmm. but absolutely and I think one of the things that would put it quite high up there is the fact that it is um, timeless it feels very timeless and I think kind of the unlikability notion that Claire brought up as well is really interesting because it really it was very ahead of its time as to how to present female characters that are not idealized or, or female characters that are questioning mm. their position in the film, the expectations of them, how they move around the world, who they are. And we're very used to seeing that with male characters, not so much because usually it's interpreted as whiny, as nagging, as, oh, just get over yourself. Or, well, you know, you don't really have that much to do. So what are you whining about? You know, your life is safe, which um, is literally the title of the film. She's in a really safe environment. She's got everything that she supposedly needs to be content and happy, but she clearly isn't. And she's breaking down physically and emotionally. And I think the fact that you can rewatch this film at different stages of your life as well and glean different mm. layers from it makes it a really compelling and endurable piece of work in Todd Haynes' filmography, but also in cinema in general, particularly in the cinema of the 90s, which I think, you know, a huge a fan as I am of the 90s, both the kind of the nostalgic blockbustery elements and the campy elements, but also the sheer volume of really forward thinking cinema that was made in that era. And I think I would recommend this film for people who maybe have an idea of the 90s as being Scream and, and Speed and The Mummy. Sort of there was this sort of filmmaking being made as well and it stands up and even gains, like I said before, even more relevance now because of all of the contagion conversation that's been happening um, because of the question of believability, especially in women's stories, of unlikability and of questioning as well, questioning the norms that we've been fed in general in Western capitalist society as to what are the correct expectations and what effects does that have on us? You know, there's a whole bunch of think pieces and articles and conversation going on about how there's a whole generation, uh, the millennial generation, where one of our biggest ailments is just burning ourselves out consistently. So does it? this film then gains a whole nother level of, um, of interest because is it asking us, does it really take a complete breakdown, a physical breakdown, to make yourself question who you are, what you want from your life. Mm-hmm. Incredibly forward thinking when you put it in that in that way. Considering at the time this was seen as a an allegory for AIDS, the AIDS outbreak. It's set in the late eighties, and it's about the stigma of being ill and uh, a. a an industry of medicine that doesn't necessarily cater for you or, or trust you and then she's pushed to the fringes, she's pushed to this cult um, in order to find herself and find her her own sense of safety. 
Claire, how do you how, how do you read that ending? It's a it's a ve- mm. it's one of those great endings of a character almost direct address to the audience, mm. like defying them, asking them to to, mm. to 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 put their own reading on the situation. Is it a happy ending, a sad ending? I think it's 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 interesting, and you know, like you were saying, it's it's really it's about what you put on on that it's like how you personally interpret it and like what you might want to take from it you know because as as you say like it, it it nods to aids and you know issues that are more not well it's still prevalent but that's something that he's nodding to um with the the kind of cultish retreat leader where it's suggested that he but well, he has aids mm-hmm. um he's hiv positive but he's somehow beaten it or kept it at bay by positive thinking and right. uh, and meditation and everything. yes yes and i think it's very and then very much about what you're putting on it and then as as you're watching it and you're just like a young woman in london this this idea is so true it, it's kind of a portrait of just burning out mm-hmm. you know and in terms of the ending it feels so relevant to now in so many ways just this thing of you know who do you rely on and and what happens when the structures you believe are enough completely break down because of course the suggestion is that when kind of normal medical science is failing her her kind of family life is failing her where does she turn and what she turns to this kind of strange cultish retreat uh, positive thinking world that doesn't help help her or cure her totally either is it better or worse? And I think in an era of information overload and, you know, not knowing what to believe or, mm. or, or who who to follow when, when traditional structures are broken down, um, that feels very, very relevant. And I completely agree it should be out in cinemas right now and everyone should be watching it. Well, it's, it's an anniversary year for it, 25 years. So right. I think this is one that's worthy of reappraisal. Yes. But, you heard it here first. Safe is one worth re-watching. If you do watch it, listeners, let us know what you think of it at the usual channels, at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email, or the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. That's it for this week. Anna, Claire, thank you so much for joining me. Next week, we're going to take a brief hiatus. We're going to be homeless without a studio. So what I'd suggest is maybe go back through the archives. Have a listen maybe to our interview with the Safdie brothers if you've had a chance to see their new film, Uncut Gems, on Netflix. That's a really fun interview, and you can really get the sense that those two brothers are exactly as uh, hyperactive as their films. Listen to that. Let us know what you think. We'll be back soon. Watch the skies for a new episode. I'm Michael Eder. As always, this has been a 70 Digital production. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.